Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button, the subscribe button, the share button, sign up for the email list, and all of that. Be back in a few seconds with Larry Wilkerson. In a speech during a Senate session on June 5th, 1986, still at the height of the Cold War, Joe Biden said this about Israel. If we look at the Middle East, I think it's about time we stop those of us who support, as most of us do, Israel in this body, for apologizing for our support for Israel. There's no apology to be made. None. It is the best $3 billion investment we make. Were there not an Israel, the United States of America would have to invent an Israel to protect her interest in the region. The United States would have to go out and invent an Israel. Now joining me to discuss just what is the strategic interest in the Middle East is Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson. He was Chief of Staff to Colin Powell at the State Department and at the Joint Chiefs. Thanks very much for joining me, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. So before we get into today or post-collapse uh, of the Soviet Union, let's go back to 1986 and into the early 90s, but especially that period towards the height of the Cold War. Uh, why was Israel considered uh, such a strategic interest of the United States? And, and is Biden, is what Biden says true, at least at that time, if there hadn't been an Israel, the United States would have invented it? Let me take you back, Paul, to 1947 and 1948 for just a minute, and then I'll fast forward. I gave a speech at the National Press Club a few years ago. It was called, Israel is not a strategic asset, it's a strategic liability. Um, what I said in that speech at the beginning was I quoted the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the study they did for Truman when he was thinking about recognizing Israel should it be in that position. The Joint Chiefs essentially predicted what has happened. They have basically said, this is not a strategic asset, it's a strategic deficiency. And it is so because there are 400 million Arabs and just a few Jews. And this is taking on all of those Arabs in perpetuity. And they talked about a lot of other things too, the partition of Palestine and so forth and so on. At any rate, it caused George Marshall, not a man to be persuaded to this kind of position in any cavalier way, to tell Truman, essentially, I might not vote for you if, if you recognize Israel, which took Truman by complete surprise. And Truman's kind of cavalier response back was essentially very accurate, though. I know there are more Jews in New York than there are Arabs, because Truman was looking at the vote and what it would do for the Democrats. Um, fast forward to the time you've just talked about. What has Israel become in what was very inchoate at that time, 1947-48, Soviets hadn't even exploded atomic weapon yet, is suddenly very cohesive. And it's the Cold War. And it's a threat that has nuclear weapons and a threat that has a poisonous ideology, we thought, called communism, and a threat that in 1986, Ronald Reagan had painted as big as a 10-foot gorilla in order to support his arms buildup in the early 80s. So here we are with Biden saying what he said. And in that particular time, as it had been since the Cold War really began to burn hot, 
you could argue that happened even after the death of Stalin and certainly with the explosion of the bomb before Stalin's death. Israel took on the appearance of an unsinkable aircraft carrier at a very strategic location in the Eastern Mediterranean. In fact, probably you could say the only place we could land, as it were, if we had to. And it had a fairly and growing competent army, uh, Air Force and other elements too. So at that time, as I admitted in my speech, you could say it was a reasonably sound strategic asset. Wasn't going anywhere. It was a democracy. Maybe it was a kibbutz-based democracy because most of those Jews who came out of Europe post-Hitler were Jews who subscribed to socialism and worse, communism. And so it was a very different country then. It didn't have the society it has today, a predatory capitalist society, a crony capitalist society, where less than 60 families own half the state, where the defense complex owns 51% of the land and so forth. It just wasn't the same country it is today. But let's take the real breaking point. When the Cold War went away, we no longer needed Israel. And therefore, the other factors that the Joint Chiefs have been so vividly pointing out in 1947, even without the Cold War, suddenly became paramount. And the most dominant one was 22 Arab nations with millions and millions of Arabs who were opposed in some way or another to Israel, not necessarily existentially opposed, but in some way or another might at some point in time take to the field as several times they did to go after Israel, became more of a, a, a growing strategic liability. Then as I pointed out in my speech, when Israel began to take on the, the, the tone intent that it has today with nuclear weapons, and there's another issue we, dis, we should discuss, why is Israel the only state in the world that the United States supports that has nuclear weapons and it lets it get away with saying it doesn't have nuclear weapons or being ambiguous about it. Um, but it began to take on a, an entirely different appearance. And once we get well into the post-Cold War period, it becomes quite obvious, and this starkly confronts me when I'm special assistant to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Colin Powell, when the first Gulf War breaks out, and I'm looking back on the Iran-Iraq War and what happened in that war and using it to inform the advice I'm giving to the chairman, and the chairman is looking at whether or not we should use force under H.W. Bush in Iraq, or in Kuwait to kick the army out of Iraq. And I began to understand, and we all began to understand, including H.W. Bush, the president, what a liability Israel is. <laughs> and and we're, we're frantically trying to keep Israel out of this war because of what the Joint Chiefs said years before. If Israel comes into this war, it'll be a disaster because then every Arab country will have all manner of reason, not only to hate the United States for what it's doing, even under UN auspices, but it'll also intensify its distrust and dislike and hatred for Israel, because Israel will come into the war as allied with the United States, formally on the ground, fighting an Arab country. And, and we did everything we could to keep Israel out of that war. We went, we bent over backwards to keep Israel out of that war. Even when they were hit with Scud missiles, you may recall, we still told them, we sent emissaries there in addition to the ones we already had there and said, don't you enter this war. Don't you dare enter this war because you'll screw the pooch. You'll mess everything up. 
And that was when I began to realize, and the military began to realize, and not me, the military, that Israel was not an asset anymore. At best, the only strategic value was the Jews in America who affiliated themselves with Israel, and that was a potent and popular population, and we had to deal with that politically, domestically. We also realized that there was this hangover from the Holocaust. And I'm being very, very clear with you. I'm not being ambiguous. There was this hangover from the Holocaust that we were partly guilty for it. There were all these things that tied us to Israel. And that was a strategic link. And so we were reluctant to suggest in any way that that link ought to be broken for that very purpose. But as time went by, and I assessed the situation more and more, and when I gave that speech at the National Press Club. What year was that speech? Um, 2016, 2017, still on YouTube. Yeah, you can see it, only about 60,000 hits so far, so it needs some more. <laughs> and uh, I came to the conclusion, and that's why I decided to answer the call and give that speech, that Israel had shifted, even with that tie, that, that sort of personal tie, domestic to domestic and so forth, to being a strategic liability. And part of the, the, the mechanism, part of the reality that convinced me was she's no longer a democracy. Israel is not a democracy. She's a, an apartheid state. At that time, she was an apartheid, when I gave the speech, she was an apartheid state, certainly in the West Bank. Carter had even written a book about it. Um, she was becoming rapidly an apartheid state in the 1967's borders, Israel, and in other places. Once we get Trump on board, she is an apartheid state in almost every extent that she exists. I predict, I've said this a number of times, in 10 years, Israel will be a fully blown apartheid state, just like South Africa was. In 20 years, Israel will no, not be a state. She'll be gone. That's why I said in that speech and have said subsequently, publicly and privately, Israel is in its most dangerous time. And we are part of that danger because we're aiding and abetting this state that is not a democracy, that exercises power brutally, that looks more like those who oppressed them in the 40s and the late 30s than they do the democracy we first recognized. And that's not good for the United States and it's not good for Israel. And my chief worry for the United States is Israel will lead us into that debacle. Now, to what extent is the view are the views you're espousing, the views of either the Joint Chiefs, the preponderance of the leadership of the military, uh, and even the foreign policy complex? Because certainly in a public way, uh, there's no wavering on this amongst the politicians on the whole. It's a sacrosanct uh, I, issue. It's not a third rail. It's a sacrosanct issue. It's sacred. You cannot touch it. One reason is because Israel has used the anti-Semite card to the point where people shiver when anything happens that Israel might light on and use the anti-Semite card. It's not as effective as Shanker said it. God bless the place that's Israel's voice box. Uh, what is it? The uh, they claim to be the Institute for Freedom and Democracy or something like that, but they really are the Institute for Israel. And you got a lot of Cheney's old gang working over there, John Hanna, for example. Um, and uh, what they've done 
is, as Shanker himself said, used the anti-Semite card so many times and many times erroneously, just as propaganda or whatever, that they're, they've weakened it considerably. So there are people like Mearsheimer and Walt, for example, two academics who wrote the Israel lobby and have taken on that lobby in a significant way. There are people now who are actually talking about what I'm talking about, that Israel's a liability, not an asset. Um, I don't know how far that's going to go before they figure that out to the extent that they're successful again, or they aren't successful again. APAC no longer has the power that it once had. APAC was probably along with the NRA and maybe big tobacco before it kind of went down and maybe big pharma and some of the others, the real estate lobby and so forth. APAC's probably the most, it is the most efficient and probably one of the most effective lobbies in Washington, but with the JCPOA, they got a defeat, their first major defeat. They did not stop that agreement under President Obama. Now they got close, they got so close that with Trump, they were able to you know, achieve their goal later. But the fact that Biden is able to come back and be making progress right now in renegotiating it um, is, is clear evidence that APAC no longer has the sway it had. Just to make sure everyone understood, you're talking about the nuclear Iran nuclear agreement. Right, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the nuclear yeah. agreement with Iran. It is changing. Very incrementally, very slowly, the relationship is changing. Probably one of the most dramatic changes is if you poll young Jewish Americans, you will find those under 30 and then those under 50 and then those under 65 have very differing views of Netanyahu, but in all age categories, they are negative. There's quite a bit of polling that shows that it's not an electoral advantage for either party amongst majority of Jews to support Netanyahu and these kinds of aggressive attacks on Gaza and such, that it actually hurts them electorally. What in, amongst the Jewish community, what who, those who are really in support of Netanyahu are some very wealthy, like Sheldon Edelman types, although he's more Republican, but there's Chaim Saban and there's you know, a bunch of billionaires and, and, and the money's very important, but electorally what is important are evangelicals who are, you know, are more pro-Israel than most of the ordinary Jews in the country are. John Hagee and his Christians United for Israel is a perfect case in point. Uh, Hagee's support for Israel is almost irrational, uh, especially when you read what Hagee writes in some of his books about how the Jews are responsible for the crucifixion of Christ and so forth. And yet they're allied with Israel. And when you ask them, when you like Max Blumenthal did, when you stick a microphone in front of their face and force them to fess up, as it were, you get yeah. these kind of pandering words like, well, at the end, all the Jews will convert. Or go to hell. <laughs> yeah, when Christ, yeah, exactly. That's the other side of it. Most, including me, are going to go to hell. <laughs> Open parentheses or go to hell. Yeah, close parentheses. It's a very untenable position. However, it's understandable from the perspective of one factor, the rapture. Um, and a lot of these fundamentalist Christians, who are also increasingly, I think, identified as nationalist Christians, that is, Christianity should be the national religion, almost like Fosseism, then you identify a group that clearly thinks the rapture is imminent, that the end times are imminent and that this alliance with Israel 
the tighter it gets, the stronger it gets, the more apt it is to bring about the Antichrist, to bring about the end times, and to bring about Christ's descent to the earth in the establishment of the thousand-year kingdom. Uh, they actually they actually believe this. And we need to add that some of that they are in very senior leadership positions in the U.S. military. So this isn't just some marginalized uh, souls here. Um, is, is the, a poll came out just a few days ago. It's a serious poll, 1,500 people or something, which is a pretty a decent sampling. Uh, the question is, if, if it became known that Iran had a nuclear weapon, um, would you support Israel, Israel using a first strike nuclear weapon against Iran, knowing that it might kill two million people? Now, it was very clear, apparently, in the question that Iran was not threatening to use this weapon. But the question was just that Iran possessed such a weapon. And if my memory serves me right, it was 60% of Israeli respondents supported a strike against Iran that could kill 2 million people. In the strategic thinking of the United States military, when they game out what to do if Iran has a nuclear weapon, is, is, the, is that part of the game that, in other words, a strategic interest of the United States is to be able to have Israel, use Israel, to attack Iran with a nuclear weapon, if that's the way they want to go. I've never heard that in my 31 years in the military. I've never heard that espoused by anyone in the military. I'm not saying that, especially with this Christian nationalism movement within the military, that there hasn't been more recently than my service, someone speculating or talking about that. But in my time, no one ever talked about it. But let's come back to my original point. What you just talked about is, if you will, the existential reason why Israel is a strategic liability and not an asset. Because they just might do something like this. Yes. Yes. We talk about irrational, theological, you know, based, theologically based people in Tehran. Turn yourself around, Mr. and Mrs. American, and look at Jerusalem and tell me what happened in the last few days isn't stark evidence that Bibi Netanyahu has exploited politically and is using politically and is using to keep himself out of jail a more rabid religious theological orientation in Israel than Iran ever dreamed of using. Yeah, there's not another country that I can think of in the world that could do what Israel is doing and still be played in a positive way more, although I must say less so this time, the attacks on Gaza than last time. There's a little more in the media. Each time they attack Gaza, the media in the United States is a little bit more open to see uh, the barbarity of it. Uh, but still, on the whole, the political class and such uh, apologize for it. And now, as we speak today, uh, just a, a few minutes before we started this interview, uh, Netanyahu announced a unilateral ceasefire. Uh, and this, I guess this is to some extent under the pressure of Biden, or maybe he needed Biden to say it, uh, to do it, because they have, you know, every time they attack Gaza, 
no matter how much destruction they cause, it doesn't take very long for Hamas and Gaza to get come back again. Yeah, here's the military strategy. This is my time at the George Washington University. It's my seminar in national security affairs. And my young student, who was one of my most brilliant students, who had served two years in the IDF, including a tour that encompassed service in Operation Cast Lead. When I got through talking to David about Operation Cast Lead. Well, remind people what that is. It, it's the operation in Gaza where this philosophy first took root that I'm going to tell you about. Military to military. I'm a former colonel in the U.S. military. He's a former lieutenant in the IDF who participated viscerally in this operation. He left his position and left Israel. The rule that they operated under was kill everything in sight because we have to make the Palestinians understand, particularly Hamas, that we will slaughter everyone for one Israeli death. Everyone. Man, woman, child, dog, cat, you name it. That's what our orders were, and that's what we did. Most Americans don't understand how deeply racist, how deeply fascistized Israeli society has become. Uh, that when these uh, you know, attacks on Gaza take place and apartments are blown up and women and children are killed, uh, that Netanyahu's popularity goes up. Uh, the the and he knows the, that very much. He so. knows that he's learned you, that lesson. It's starting to break down some in the United States. Some of the media starting to acknowledge it, which I which I think is you know Biden even electorally realized he needed to say something. Mind you, he waited long enough to say something that in some ways he gave Netanyahu a way out. Well, uh, remember I told you at one time I was asked to be foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders' campaign. Mm. And then someone read what I'd said about Israel. It might have even been from that speech I was telling you about in the New York Times because they reported it. And Bernie's chief staff called me and said, uh, no, go away, go away. And I realized right away. And yet look how far Bernie Sanders has now come and what he said about Netanyahu's government and so forth and particularly about these operations in Gaza. Um, people are waking up. And as I've said before, if Israel loses our unqualified support, then Israel is on its own. And if it's an apartheid state on top of that, still trying to be greater Israel and fulfill the Zionist wildest dreams, it will disappear. It will mm. simply disappear. There's a pressure being put on some members of Congress, people are asking uh, some of the, the squad and other progressives to take this up. Uh, up under under uh, U.S. law, apparently, it is illegal to give aid to a country that hasn't signed the non-proliferation agreement and has nuclear weapons. So, in fact, this three, $3 billion a year is not even legal. Yeah, they don't have nuclear weapons. <laughs> yeah, they don't. Have. They have Demona out there, and they're going to modify and modernize Demona, and you know, blah 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 blah. But they don't have nuclear weapons. Everybody in the world knows they have nuclear weapons. Who has a brain? Well, Jimmy Carter actually, you know, in terms of an official, spilled the beans a few years ago, and Carter came out and said they have. When you got a former president that obviously knows, says that it's kind of ridiculous. But maybe the reason the United States doesn't acknowledge that they have it is precisely because 
it would make the aid illegal. They'd be acknowledging that. Well, you know, there's so many illegalities. Let me just give you one example of how ridiculous this is. I'm I, Richard Haas, when I was on the policy planning staff at State from 2001 to 2002, um, put me into political military affairs every morning going to Link Bloomfields, the assistant secretary for PM, going to his meetings every morning and reporting back to policy planning. We were in there one morning and an Apache helicopter firing a hel- Hellfire missile had just fired into a hotel room killing a much wanted, they said, leader of Hamas, which I have no reason to doubt, but also killed all of his family, including his wife, his children, his brother, and all these other people. Well, that was a misuse of American aid. If you read the law, you cannot use American arms under the contract that we have for these kinds of purposes. Guess what we did? We argued. We argued all morning on whether or not we were going to demarch them In other words, send a diplomatic cable that said, shame on you, slap on your wrist. There was no talk of the law. There was no talk of the illegality of the action. There was only talk about whether or not we were going to slap them on the wrist. End of story. We didn't even do that. Uh, Let me go back to this idea that there is a national, like I'm going to argue that there's a section, at least the, the CIA and U.S. military intelligence and others, where Israeli intelligence, Mossad and such, are a strategic asset. That the Mossad will go in and kill Iranian scientists. Mossad will- They're not using their capabilities against you. <laughs> well, maybe they can maybe. live with, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's part of the idea that it is still a U.S. asset, that, that that the Israeli national security establishment uh, can do stuff that the Americans wouldn't like to do themselves. And, and, that, and that not only that, they're very good. And so they- I that. actually was a beneficiary, if you will, or the unit for which I worked was a beneficiary of some Mossad produced, Israeli intelligence produced information during the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and I would say during the Cold War, that was basically true, that they were an asset in terms of intelligence sharing. But it immediately fell off after the Cold War ended because no one knew whether what we were getting was actually the truth. And it became a real trial to try and sort it out and understand it. And so what the military does when that's the case is usually discard it. U.S. strategic interest, you can kind of break that down and ask U.S. strategic interest for whom? What I mean by that is the American elites, the military-industrial complex, the political class and such. Does everyone know how the complex works with Israel? We pour arms and assets into them and they pay us back with with our own money? Or we give them arms and then we pay the contractor for our giving them arms. (laughs) All right. Well, 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 what what I'm about to say is not an economic argument, but U.S. strategic interest, as I understand it, is not so much really, although they pretend it is, about securing the country. It's not defense. It's not about national security primarily, although, of course, it has some features of that. It's primarily about maintaining uh, predominant control, U.S. hegemony, being the global superpower. 
that may be perceived by people in an honest way that by maintaining the United States as the superpower helps defend the country from attacks, or it's understood that to maintain American commercial superiority, it helps to be militarily dominant. Now, one can argue whether that's even true or not, but- What it has to do with more, Paul, is domestic politics. I know people don't like hearing this, but I teach this. Domestic politics is often more influential on national security decision-making and even foreign policy decision-making than national interests. The interest of the people in power is often more important than the genuine interest of the country. And with Israel, that is 10 times more powerful and true because you don't get elected in this country if you don't support Israel, period. Ask Chuck Percy. You don't. Let me finish the thought because I, I, I'm not disagreeing with what you no, just said. No, I, I just want to make sure you understand. I think that yeah. this is this has really come full blown from what the Joint Chiefs predicted in the beginning, and it is now a domestic issue more than it is an international issue, security issue, or foreign policy issue. Whether it's Israel or even other areas, what I'm getting at is is, is a somewhat different question, which is the the interest of being the dominant power in the Middle East, and, and at least it seems like the political and military class still thinks Israel's needed for America to be dominant in the Middle East. And you can argue it isn't, and you are, that it's not that kind of asset, but some will argue with you and say it is. But I'm raising the, a different question. Is it actually in the interest of the American people that the U.S. Be, maintains its dominance around the world? That, in fact, the national interest, if you define it by the interest of the majority of ordinary Americans, it's actually not in their interest to be the dominant power in the world. Uh, you know, I can understand defense, but 800 military bases and so on and so on, th that ordinary Americans really don't benefit from this. Watch my speech, keynote, opening speech, 945 yesterday morning to your, your Canadian Institute for Peace and Diplomacy where I essentially said the United States would be better served in terms of its national interest, its domestic interest, and its overall set of interests in the world if it were to withdraw from Central Command and the Levant and most of Africa, with the exception of the Red Sea, Djibouti now, immediately. And it was so because it was so, so clearly from roughly the fall of the Shah, when the Shah really was our hegemon and our sort of look over the situation in the Gulf and keep it peaceful, we lost him. And the balance was between Iran and Iraq. And we did everything from offshore. We call it now offshore balancing, you know, John Mearsheimer and others, Stephen Walt talk about that. But what it meant was not a single soldier, sailor, airman, or marine on the ground in the Levant. Not a one. Not this huge complex in Kuwait, huge complex in Qatar, huge complex in Bahrain, huge complex in Saudi Arabia. We didn't have any of that. 
that started with the first Gulf War. And it was a huge mistake. In fact, bin Laden and a fatwa listed that as one of his reasons why he was going to attack the great Satan, because we'd left troops on the ground in the holy places in Saudi Arabia. We knew that was a bad move in the military. We told everyone it was a bad move. Look, this is what we've been doing for so long. We don't need to change that. No, look what we got now. We got the greatest force laid out on the history of the globe in that region, naval, air, Marines, soldiers, and so forth. I said, get out, get out. Don't just do what Joe Biden is doing and begin to act like you might get out. Get out, get out. What does that do? Because I said, okay, what would Russia do? What would China do? What would Turkey do? And so forth. And then I got down to Israel. I said, what would Israel do? Grow up or die. That doesn't mean we would leave them entirely. We'd still be able to get to them with formidable power. The formidable power today, by the way, and you know this, is cyber power. The formidable power is to bring the eastern seaboard of the United States by a slight little hack that a high schooler could have done uh, down to its knees because it can't get any gas for its cars. Imagine that writ large all across the country in power, in heating, in air conditioning, in everything that you can think of that's networked in this country to include the financial system brought to its knees. That's the future of warfare. So that's another reason why you don't need this hugely expensive and contractor intensive Force lay down in the Middle East. You just don't well, need it. Get out. Well, isn't that isn't that part of the reason for doing all this? There's so much money being made. But Absolutely. I should add, it's not just defense of Israel. It's defense of the Saudis and the Emirates and all these monarchies. Look what's happened, though, with Biden. Look at what's happened. Trump did it to start with because he didn't respond to the drone shoot down. He didn't respond to the attack on the Saudi oil facilities. He did kill Soleimani, but that was a one-off event. Okay. Look, Ben Salman has changed his approach. He's now talking to Tehran. Oman's good offices have been offered and accepted. There are sizable, significant talks taking place right now. Why? Because the United States is no longer reliable. Well, let's be completely unreliable. Well, then what happens to all those Saudi arms sales if the Iran and the Saudis get to, can be less antagonistic? Exactly. I, I, I don't for a minute say this is going to be easy. It's not going to be easy because there are going to be people from Lockheed Martin to Boeing lined up to stop you from doing it. And they're going to tell you that the sky is falling, that if you leave, the Russians will come in. You leave, the Chinese will come in. At best, the Chinese will come in with soft power. They're already there with soft power. They're Sun Tzu. They're not Clausewitz. They're going to do everything with soft power. And then I pointed out that we have 800 bases on the globe, and China and Russia together, and the rest of the world have less than 70. So tell me again how they're going to come in and take over. And besides, if they do, then they'll have all the headaches we have now. Well, it reminds me of a quote uh, when the British were debating what to do with Canada, uh, whether to try to keep it a colony. The, the quote was, the colonies are a millstone around our neck. Get rid of them. <laughs> Give Canada to Washington and sink it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for joining. America. Thanks for joining me, Larry. Thanks for having me, Paul. Thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button, the share, subscribe, and the various buttons.